Uh, y'all go ahead and turn to First Peter first, and then we'll pray. Turn to First Peter chapter 1. I want to read three verses from this book to prepare us for what we're looking at uh, tonight, because what we're looking at tonight is, uh, is pretty weighty. It's, it's, uh, it's challenging because it's, it's outside of what's normal to us, what, what would be a natural response to us. And so we're talking about uh, two kids, Jacob and Esau, and, uh, and I just want us to approach it rightly. So I want to read these verses. The first one's 1 Peter 1.13. And it says, therefore, <clears throat> preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want us to prepare our minds before we um, engage this uh, text in Genesis 25 tonight, and I want us to be sober-minded. Uh, to be sober-minded is the opposite of having an intoxicated mind. Our minds can be intoxicated with a number of different things. They can be intoxicated with our opinions. They can be intoxicated uh, with the word, and that would be sober-minded. They can be intoxicated with alcohol, drugs. We, there's a number of things that can intoxicate a mind. But I want us to be sober-minded tonight, being willing to do everything we can to have a right view of who God is and what he does and how he does it, and to do that in a way where we're not a divisive people. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 7 in that same book, First Peter. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. We're about to pray that God would give us insight into his character and how he deals with his people tonight. And again, we can't we can't just pray the things we want. We need to be praying the things that, that God reveals to us in the Word. And some of the things He reveals to us tonight are very, very hard. And we need to have a sober mind so that we can respond appropriately. The next one is in 5.8, just the next chapter there in First Peter. And he says, uh, we'll just start in 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. As we talk tonight, we're going to see Rebecca, a mom, who has great reason for great anxiety. One of the things we see here in First Peter is that um, the two things that are, that are kind of contrasted against each other is anxiety and humbling yourself before the Lord. And what that reveals is that while anxiety may seem like something that's to be pitied, anxiety is actually a source of pride because you're not humbling yourself before God. And that seems counterintuitive. It, it seems like, man, it's to be, it's to be pitied. I, I'm in a hard place. But this says, humble yourselves before the Lord, casting your anxieties on him with the big reminder that he cares for you. And he did, he showed that to Rebecca in some of the hard verses we're going to engage tonight. And then he says, this is the reasoning, be sober-minded. Again, this re repetition of sober-minded, not intoxicated with opinions or opinions of your own or of others. Um, be watchful. Look at what you're learning. Look at, listen to what you're hearing. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's not just metaphorical. That, that's, that's real. The devil's very real, and he wants to see you fail. And it says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, a little while, 
the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, uh, we pray for the things that you've revealed in your word. Uh, we do not want to be spontaneous in our prayer in the timing of it or the content of it, but we want to be specific. We, we desire that we would be sober-minded. And we know that apart from the work of your spirit, we won't be sober-minded. Uh, we desire that, especially in preparation for what we encounter in Genesis 25 tonight with Jacob and Esau and how you work and how it's different from maybe even the way we would have put the whole thing together. But that reveals something to us. And as, as we see what that reveals to us tonight, I pray that any anxiety that is stirred would be dealt with rightly, that we would humble ourselves before you knowing that you care for us knowing that you watch over your children, knowing that you don't leave your children unprotected uh, from a, a devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, that you are our shepherd, you are our comforter, you are our sustainer, you are our protector, you are our provider. And so, God, we desire to engage the text tonight, your word, your breathed-out word, in a sober-minded way, as the things you revealed to Rebecca are very weighty, and they're true for us today. So, God, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask you to uh, sharpen our minds, give us insight, give us wisdom, give us discernment, as we have just, just a couple more studies here in Genesis uh, before the summer. Let us finish strong. Let us do well uh, for the sake of your glory, uh, not just understanding, not just knowledge, but, but for the, the acquiring of those things to aim at, at glorifying you and putting uh, who you are on display so others can glorify you too. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 25. <coughs> this is our uh, third uh, week in Genesis 25. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 34. And, uh, and we'll jump right into it. And again, as I've already said, and those verses I read from 1 Peter, this is a very difficult passage. And um, there's been more division over what's said in this passage than maybe any other in all of Scripture. So we got a lot of fun we're going to have tonight. So uh, Genesis 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We talked about that last week in, in, in depth. And so the Lord answered his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And then in the next verse, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Another way to say what she said there is, is there any point, why am I even alive? This is so horrible. The pain that I'm experiencing physically in my womb, spiritually, mentally is horrible. And she's saying, why is this us happening to me to an extent where she's really saying, why, what's the point in living if this is what's going on? And so she's in a, she's in a place of, of real anxiety and real heartache here. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I think we have two more weeks, or this week and maybe next week, possibly a third one in this, but um, tonight we're going to be focusing on that first part of the section that we read. And I want to kick off our time together with a question of devotion. Uh, We talked last week about being sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. We mentioned it again before we even started tonight, and these things are needed uh, in both the timing and the content of our prayers. It's not enough to be just spontaneous. But what I'm looking at tonight is we can't just assume that all of our previous prayers uh, have all gone well. We need to reflect on the way that we pray. That's part of what it is to have a sober mind. We need to look at what are, what's our prayer life look like? How, what are we offering up to God? How, what is fueling that prayer? And it's really a question of devotion. We need to reflect and assess on our prayers, assess our prayers so that we might rightly keep our motives in check. Now, the question I want to pose tonight is, uh, what was Isaac most devoted to? How can can we look at his prayer and learn how to assess our own? What do we know about his prayer or prayers? (laughs) Yeah? You see him persevering? He's praying for his wife? Yes. He wanted plans to be lived out, the promised plans from God to be lived out through his family. What else do we know about his prayers as we kind of assess them? Is it finally after 20 years of barrenness, he was like, I think I'll pray. No, it was still after 20 years he's praying, so that's part of that perseverance. Um, so, I would ask the question, in assessing those prayers, was Isaac more devoted to his desire for offspring or was he more devoted to God? What do y'all think? Yeah, I think he was more devoted to God. I think if he was more devoted to his offspring than he was to God, his prayers would not have lasted two decades. And the content here of of him going and, and, and praying for his wife, I think what we see here, we can assess his motives, at least in part. We can't always know fully the heart of a man But I believe that he was more devoted to God than he was his desire for offspring, though his desire for offspring was great. And so it's necessary for us to make these assessments and these reflections. We need to be checking our motives, and this is the reason. This is what we're landing on tonight. We need to be looking at our prayers and how we pray and the motives of our prayers for this reason. God will make decisions that you don't agree with. Catch that. But I thought he was God. I thought he loved me. He does immensely in a way that you can't even comprehend. But hear what I'm saying. God will make decisions that you don't agree with. He will make decisions 
in the way that things will play out in your life, in the lives of your loved ones, in the lives of Isaac and Rebecca, that most of us would say, no, what? What are you doing? That's not right. But we need to get that straight. He's going to make decisions we don't agree with. And so consider the passage. The Lord granted their prayer. He granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Good news. That's good news. The Lord granted the prayer. Rebecca's womb was opened by the hand of God. That's a big deal. Two decades of no baby to this one who, has, who was promised offspring. The promised offspring was through this couple. And for two decades, no baby. And here, God opens the womb. That's good news. And in the very next sentence, the children struggled within her. The children struggled within her. This is a great time to check those motives in devotion because God will always answer our prayers, but sometimes it will be in a way that reveals our will was not the same as his. God will always answer our prayers, but it will be in a way sometimes where um, what's revealed is that what his plan was was not our plan. And so what's going to happen there is we're going to do one of two things. One, we will conform to his will and we'll submit to his hand and we'll be content. What's the opposite of contentment? Resentment, restlessness, vexing, fretting. Is it, is that hard for anyone in here? Discontentment is easy. I mean, anything can happen in the course of any day and in the snap of a finger, I'm whining, I'm complaining, I'm vexing, I'm fretting, I'm resenting something. And God has clearly answered a prayer, but, but I may be, nah, that's not how I would have dealt with it. That's not how I would have dealt with it. So you either conform to his will and submit to his hand and, and be content with what God has for you. And what you do when that happens is you show that your devotion is to him over your will. This is a hard question. Is your devotion more to God or to yourself? The second thing, adversely, would be that we would turn from God because we disagree with his decision, showing that our devotion is truly more to ourselves than it is to him. So as we pray, God will answer our prayers. But what we see here is that he answers the prayer in a way that's like, yes, the womb is, whoa, the children are struggling within her. What is that? Ha- what is, what's, all, what's that all about? And so what happens when that happens is either we're going to submit to God's will and we're not going to grumble and complain, and whine, and vex, and fret, and we'll show that we're in fact more devoted to God than we are to ourselves, or we'll do the exact opposite. We'll turn from God, we'll cuss God, we'll complain to God, we'll complain to others about God, and what we'll actually reveal about what's in our hearts is that we're more devoted to ourselves than we are to God. I mean, think about how easy it is to complain. Think about, through the course of every day, how easy it is to just fall out and wah, 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 wah. Or to get caught up in a conversation, someone's complaining about something, you haven't even thought about what they're complaining about, but you just jump in and complain with them. I've done that a lot. I'm having to check myself because I see that happening where someone's like, man, I can't believe that. And I'm like, yeah, I can't believe that either. I hate that. uh, Yeah, horrible. My day's ruined. My day is done because I hate that as much as you. And you just kind of jump in. It's so easy to be brought into that. Um. A side note on this, and this is not the main point, but I think it's a point worth making, is that if in reality God is going to make decisions that we don't agree with, and we're going to talk more about that. We're not jumping away from that. 
But as a side note, if God, God makes decisions about how things will go, and in our fallen sinful nature, we disagree with it and we resist it, it's also inevitable that our earthly leadership will make decisions that we don't agree with too. There's times where your boss, um, maybe the one leading your family, um, maybe even the elders of the church, but not often. I'm going to be careful. <laughs> Never, right. Uh, there may be times where your earthly leadership does something you disagree with. But if you just remind yourself, even God makes decisions I don't agree with, it will keep you from going, well, I disagree, and I, I'm going to raise my voice, and I'm going to run away, and I'm going to tell everybody how horrible you are. It keeps us from being divisive if we understand that even God makes decisions we don't agree with. Now, we're going to keep going into this because some of y'all might be saying, I don't know that I disagree with God that much, but here, we'll, we'll get to it. The problem is not always with the other person, but most often it's with us. We went to a, a marriage conference recently, and, uh, and one of the things that the guy, the point that the guy brought up is that your biggest problem in marriage is you. It's not always the outside, you know, things bombarding your marriage or the other person in the marriage. It's oftentimes you. Most of the time, it's you. You're your biggest problem. And it's the same here. It's not always others. And in those moments that we um, either want to rebel, um, in those moments where we're challenged, we'll either gonna, we're either going to rebel or submit to the design that God has in place. So getting back to these prayers that God answers, but not in the way that we quite would want him to because we don't always agree with the decisions that God makes. Some examples of God answering prayers in ways different than you desired. I just thought of a few, and then I want to hear from y'all because I think that probably all of us have an example that we could probably share about a prayer that we offered up to God and he answered it, and then it was like, and like the, the brakes screeched, and we thought, well, not quite. That's not what I had in mind. I thought about uh, pregnancies uh, with complications. You pray, Lord, we want a child, we want a child, and then there's complications or adoptions with complications where you pray and you pray, Lord, please make this work. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do this, but there's complications. Um, I, I've, I, I've known people where God spared their life, but not their legs. You can keep your life, but he took their legs and their, their whole life was changed. Or maybe providing a job, but it's not your dream job. Um, there's a lot of people who engage that, especially given the, the, uh, the, the state of the economy. Can y'all think of other examples where God has answered a prayer be it in your life or a life of someone you just observed, where he answered it, but you're like, oh, that may not have been the way I did it. There's, there's kind of a, almost seems to be a twist to the answer. Yeah, their pain went away, but yeah, it went away to, to their next life, yeah. Really? Wow. If we would have ordered the story we would have ordered it differently. But God's still God. Throughout Scripture, God reveals things about his design that are in direct opposition to the way we would have done things. We've all experienced it in some way or another. He reveals things about the way that he works and the way that he is and the way that he functions and the way that he um, defines things that show we're not God. These revelations um, of who God is are reminders that, that we're not God rather than something that makes us say, God, who do you think you are? It's rather, God, you are God. I'm not. Um, just last week, we saw what happens when you set out to play God. The result is vain failure. 
when you set out to do something you're not equipped to do. No one in here is equipped to play God and make decisions about life and the way things go. Um, and if you think that you are and you set out to try and do that, you're only going to show that you're not God. Anytime you set yourself against the scriptures, you only show, you only prove them. You don't ever disprove them. Anytime there's a truth revealed about God and you or anyone else sets themselves against that truth, all they ever do is prove the truth. You don't undo it because God's God and we're not. So I want to look at the content of what he revealed to Rebecca, and hopefully this will become more and more personal. The content of what God revealed to Rebecca. Children are struggling within Rebecca <clears throat> to the point of causing her to ask, if this is the way it's going to be, what's the point in living? God, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? There is real agony here. I think that people experience this in a very real way, where the agony and the pain and even the depression and the frustration in your life comes into such a point where you say, God, what is the point of living if it's going to be this way? And I would go to the extent to say it's not always overdramatic. I don't think Rebecca is being overdramatic here. I don't think anyone should step in and say, Rebecca, everyone, a lot of people have had babies, just calm down. I think that the agony that is going on because of the struggle within her womb is hurting her physically, spiritually, mentally in such a way that she's crying out truthfully in agony to God and saying, God, why am I even living? What's the point? I think that's real. I think there's a lot of people who experience that same emotion, that same feeling, that same thought, that same response when they're in such a hard situation as God. What's the point in living if it's going to be this way? And God comforts her. But the comfort's not what we would think. <clears throat> Rebecca sets a good example for us because what does she do when she's in this agony and this, this, this angst and this depression and this frustration and this physical pain, what does she do? She goes straight to God. That's a good example that Rebecca has set for us. You go to God with that. It's like the same thing that Ben talked about on Sunday, where if someone's sick, don't go straight to the medicine cabinet. You go to God. Then go to the medicine cabinet, but go to God first. The example that Ben shared on Sunday about the person passing on the choir loft and the, the pastor praying that the Lord would watch over them and, and do what is needed to take care of them, and then saying amen, and then saying, is there a doctor here? Take care of it. Rebecca goes to the Lord here as she's crying out. <clears throat> she goes to the Lord for comfort. Comfort, and here's the Lord's comfort. This is where it gets real personal and really hard. This is how the Lord comforts Rebecca in this really really difficult time of her life. The Lord says, catch all this, I have placed two nations in your womb. They are fighting because of the way I made them. They will be divided from birth. One will be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Does this sound comforting to anyone? The reality is it's very comforting, but not in the way that any of us would have ordained it. Why is it comforting? Why is it actually comforting? What's God saying? In all those statements, I've placed two nations in your womb. They're fighting because of the way I made them. They're going to be divided from birth. The older will serve the younger, and one will be stronger than the other. How do you feel, Rebecca? Why is that actually comfort? What is God reminding us of? He's God. He's in control. Yeah, well, this reminder that God's giving them is from the womb. 
I'm, I'm over that life. From the point that life is life, it's my life to do with what I want to do with it as God. But that doesn't change the way Re- Rebecca's not like, okay, well, I hate one and love the other two. That's not what Rebecca's called to. It doesn't actually change what she's called to as a mother. It doesn't change what Isaac's called to as a father. But it reminds us that um, God is in control. And he didn't, he, notice he didn't swoop in and say, sweetheart, I had no idea how much pain you were in. I had no idea how hard this was for you. Let me just fix it all. They'll stop struggling. They'll stop fighting. They, will, they won't be divided. Let me, just, let me just bring just a perfect little piece here and make it okay. That's not God's comfort in this situation. And I think that any of us, given that we were Rebecca and Isaac, would probably not have laid the cards out like that. We probably would have rewritten the story in a different way. We probably would have said, God, I came to you for comfort, and I'm not feeling so hot right now because all you've told me is the thing that was causing me pain. But what he did was he didn't just tell her the thing that was causing her pain. He told her, yes, this is causing you pain. Yes, this is the way it is, and I'm God. I'm God, and it's okay, and I'm with you. Does it sound comforting? Hopefully our answer is yes, because God's revealing that it's not out of his control, but it's by his doing. This is very, very hard. This is a very hard truth. We were going to stop our Genesis study a few weeks ago, and we were going to be watching a DVD series on marriage right now, and the Lord led us otherwise. And then as I realized he was going to be finishing up our Genesis study before the summer with Jacob and Esau, I was like, "Uh ah, that's funny. That's easy, right? We'll just talk about Jacob and Esau this divided people in a womb. That's, that's simple. Simple way to finish the, the semester and kick off the summer. Um, but I think, that, I think it's necessary that we look at this, and I think that God knows it's going to be hard for us. This is hard because what's happening is before either of these children were born, before either of these children were born, God is revealing that he has a very specific yet very different plan for each of them. I just read it. I'm not telling you I'm not reading something different and then telling you something different. I'm, I read it to you, and now I'm telling you what God has said. So he's revealing that he has a very specific yet very different plan for each of these children. This conflict, like the pregnancy itself, did not arise from natural causes. This is not natural. The God of nature has changed the order of nature. And we have to ask the question, are we okay with that? That's where we're landing tonight. The God of nature has changed the order of nature. Are we okay with that? Are you going to buck the system and, and say, no, uh, 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 that is not the order of nature. The order of nature is different, and, and he can't change that. Or are we going to soberly, in a sober-minded way, say the God of nature can change the order of nature in the same way that he can walk on water, in the same way that he can breathe life into a dead carcass? Are we okay with the God of nature changing the order of nature? Because this conflict is not just a natural thing that came up. It's God interceding and causing it. It's natural, and this is where it gets even harder. So just, just hang in there. Hang in there. It's natural for a mom to say, they're both my children and I love them equally. That's very natural. All moms in here would probably say, yeah. But God is saying, I only love one of them and I hate the other. 
this is hard. This is hard. Are we okay with the God of nature changing the order of nature? Is our view of God high enough to where we can endure such very hard truths? Because that's what he's done here. He said, I've caused this division. I put two nations in your womb. Conflict that we see and that we watch in the news today is from this God-ordained happening. One of the things that we do when we come across a hard passage like this is to treat it in very human terms. I remember the first time I was, someone read this to me, and they just read it. And I said, quote, not my God. Not my God. My God would never, ever, ever do that. That's what I said. And then they opened up to John 6, 44, and they just read it. And I said, not my God. My God would never do that. And they opened it up to Romans 9, and they just read it. And I said, no, 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 not my God. My God would never do that. A lot of times, uh, we also deem the passage up for different interpretations. It would be very easy for someone to sit in in this study and hear me say, while mom is saying they're both my children, I love them equally, God is saying, I love one of them and I hate the other because I ordained this division and I put two nations in your womb. Someone could say very easily, that's your interpretation, it's different than my interpretation. But Howard Hendricks in his book, uh, Living by the Book, makes a very good point. He says, when you're studying Scripture, spend time observing. Spend 80% of your time observing. Observe, just look, what's there, what's there. He said, then, the more observing you have, the better interpretation you have of what the Scriptures mean. And then there's a lot of different applications. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. One of the points that he makes is that um, in Scripture, there's only one right interpretation, but there's many different applications. Hear, Hear this. There's only one right interpretation of Scripture, but there's many different applications. There's a lot of ways that we could look at this and respond. There's, an, there's application in our life. There's a lot of different things. That's why when every time we study the Bible, you guys can walk away and apply it in different ways because it applies in different ways. But the interpretation is God's. This is God's breathed out word. If it was all up for interpretation, we would then be able to just say, well, I'm going to play God. I mean, I see God's words, but I'm going to make them mean what I want to mean. And you make them mean what you want to mean. And you make them mean what you want to mean. And you can make them mean what you want to mean. And then what we're actually doing is a people who are professing to be God's people, we're just being our people. We're just being our own people. And we're just playing God. And in fact, we don't need God if we're going to all do that. Just you interpret it this way, you interpret it this way, you interpret it this way, you interpret it this way. What we need to say is God is God. And we're going we're to get into this more, but there's only one right interpretation and many different applications. So what this means is that if you have a disagreement in Scripture about what something means, different interpretations is no place to hang your hat. It's no place to just end. It's no place to, okay, we just interpret that differently. If you're truly believers who love the Lord and submit to His hand... You should say, someone is wrong, and it might be me, but one of us is wrong. I'm saying that I do disagree, and in fact, Scripture, what we're going to look at, calls you that if you do disagree, you need to disagree wholeheartedly, yet, saying that I'm not necessarily saying you're wrong, I'm saying I disagree, I may get to heaven, and I may find out that I was wrong, but at this point, what God calls me to in this life, even though I'm in a fallen state... And what I see here, this is where I stand, and I stand here firmly, and I hold my conviction strong. And I may find out one day I was wrong, but I'm called now to be fully convinced on what I believe. 
God calls us to be fully convinced. Turn to Romans 14, and we're, this is, I know this feels weird, y'all. I know this just feels like a circus. And from the teaching standpoint, it does too. But I want y'all to turn to Romans 14, because I want us to handle this passage the right way. And really, what we find is that in handling it the right way, what we're doing is we're being handled by it. If we're a humble people desiring to know our God more clearly, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Scripture, and rather than handling it the right way, we're going to be handled by it. And in Romans 14, verse 5, it says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Hear that. Everything that we read leading up to the study, those verses in 1 Peter about a sober mind, this is what a sober mind looks like. It's fully convinced of what it believes. A sober mind is fully convinced of what it believes. This section of Scripture is saying some people will eat meat, but some people don't. But both of them are aiming to honor the Lord. Some people observe this day, and some people observe this day, but both of them are aiming to honor the Lord. And what it's saying is that wherever you're going to land to observe this day, to not observe this day, to eat meat, to not eat meat, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. It doesn't leave room for a wishy-washy approach to your belief. Be fully convinced. Know what you believe. Spend the necessary time it takes to feast on the Word and know what you believe. It helps no one, and it does not put the glory of God on display. When I say, this is what I believe, and someone just offers up something different, and you're like, well, maybe I believe that. Well, no, maybe I believe that. Maybe I believe that. You're called to be fully convinced. Don't be wishy-washy, tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. Know what you believe, but here's the deal. Hold your convictions in humility, bold humility. Hear that. That sounds like, like they don't go together, boldness and humility. But what this is saying is you be fully convinced on what you believe, and you hold that conviction in bold humility. There has to be a balance here because there's, if there's an imbalance, there's going to be a division in the people of God. This is hard. The reason I'm talking about this is because when I say, when I'm reading about Jacob and Esau and some of the things I'm going to read to you in just a minute, if we don't hold our convictions boldly but humbly, the people of God, those claiming to be one, are going to be divided because we may be bold but not humble, or we may be humble but not bold. Both are divisive. Know what you believe. Um, John Piper makes a comment about this truth that's revealed in Romans 14, and he says it really well. He says, Christ-honoring passions, Paul says, can unite us in spite of differences of application. If your aim is the honor of the Lord and your passion that is fueling your heart and that bold conviction that you hold humbly, is to, the aim of all that is to honor the Lord, that can actually unite us if we believe there's a different application within the Scriptures. If we believe there's a different, um, well, different application in the Scriptures, that can unite us if our aim is to honor the Lord. And Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sin, says doctrinal pride is the assumption that whatever my doctrinal beliefs are, whatever I believe, they are correct, and anyone who holds another belief is theologically inferior. We're all prone to that. We're all prone to saying, I know what I know, and you're dumb. That's what we're prone to saying. 1 Corinthians 8 um, talks about a knowledge that rather than showing love, it puffs us up. It's a warning. Don't let the knowledge that you have puff you up to make you arrogant where you look down your nose at other people who hold different beliefs with Boldness 
and humility and you say, you're stupid. You're a moron if you don't see what I see because it's so clear. Hold your convictions boldly, but do it humbly. Realize that many godly and theologically capable people hold other convictions. However, hold yours boldly. That doesn't mean waver just because someone else has a different opinion. Know what you believe. The point is that in the midst of our disagreements, we should not always aim to be right. We should aim to honor the Lord. In the midst of our disagreements, we should not always just aim to be right. We should not always aim for others to look at us and say, you're right. Think about the disagreements you have with people, especially over doctrinal issues like Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You want them to look at you and say, you're right. So you can go, yeah, I know. Don't aim to be right. Aim to honor God by holding your convictions boldly, yet humbly, being reminded that neither ourselves nor those we dis disagree with are God. If you have a disagreement with someone, you can be beautifully put on display how great God is by saying, man, I so disagree with you. I couldn't disagree with you more, but guess what? You're not God, and I'm not God, but God is God. And let's both aim in this disagreement to honor the Lord. So in our trans transition back to Genesis 25, go ahead and turn back there. The God of nature has changed the order of nature. And he's even further restricted the blessing to not only the seed of Isaac. Remember, through Isaac shall your offspring be blessed. Now that seed has been divided to only a part of the seed, Jacob. Yeah, this, um, as we see this division, be reminded that I used to think that if I didn't have the perfect words to share at the perfect time, that I might scare someone, and, and by my poor sharing of the truth, I would make them lose their salvation. I would think, I don't even want to open my mouth to anybody. I don't want to talk to a coworker or a friend or a family member because I might scare them away, and maybe if I just shut my mouth, they're better off, and they'll have better chances at salvation other than if I maybe scare them away. Yeah, yeah, there was a, uh, I was at a conference, and, and, uh, there were some, you know, it was kids. It was like thousands of kids. And, uh, and it was the time where everyone, you know, bow your heads. And if you want to say the prayer, say the prayer. And, uh, and you know, okay, eyes down. If you're saying the prayer, look up. Look at me. When we eye contact as if the person's making eye contact with every single person who prayed the prayer. And uh, there were some kids talking. And uh, they were being kids. And they were talking. And they were laughing. And uh, one of the counselors strongly rebuked them with, you are talking when salvation is being explained and they could be praying a prayer right now and because you were talking during the prayer, they could go to hell. Hello. As if a 12-year-old who's being a 12-year-old could scare someone away from eternal salvation. As if God's that lame and weak. But that's a view that, that I grew up with in large part. Kind of like, y'all, you... You're talking during a prayer, really? Do you hate them that much? You know, that kind of view that you, just by talking during the pray the prayer time, could scare someone to hell. The division that happens is, is a God-ordained division, and here the division that we see is a division, not just the division that was already through Isaac, shall you often be named, but even that part, a part of the seed. All, we had this seed. It's just a seed. It's a part. There's lots of people on the earth, and there's a seed that God's saying, through that seed, I'm going to bless the earth. And now he's saying, it's actually part of that seed, the Jacob part, not the Esau part. So here we see this division, and what I want to do 
just put the nail in the coffin, I want to read some verses to you, first from Genesis 25, 23, and then from Romans 9. Genesis 25, 23 says, and I've already read it once, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And then turn over to Romans 9, verses 6 through 16. And if no one's ever read these verses to you or you've never read them, I beg you to be sober-minded in your approach to God. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Like there's division. Jacob, I love, what's going on? Two nations in the womb struggling? Rebecca's hurting? What, What happened? It's not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah, who we're talking about, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And though they were not yet born, still in the womb, and had done nothing, either good or bad, Jacob didn't do anything to merit this. Esau didn't do anything to jeopardize this. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call or because of the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, for some, you can read that and say, nothing I can do. And for some, you'll read that and say, God does everything. Praise the Lord that I don't have to earn that because I can't. To hear the scriptures plainly spoken, not added to, not taken away from, and then say, not my God, my God would never do that, is to be idolatrous. It is idolatry cloaked in righteousness. I'm speaking from what I've experienced in my past. I'm not condemning people looking down my nose. I did this. This is actually idolatry. And this is idolatry that's cloaked in righteousness because what you're saying is is we're acting as though it's not possible that this would happen. It's not possible that God would do that to those babies in that womb before they even had a chance to even try and earn it. Give them a shot. It's not even possible because our view of God is so high. In reality, it's the view of ourselves that is so high, very high. We add to and take away from the aspects of God in the order that they accommodate our likes and our dislikes. We can do this on a jillion levels, not just this level, but on a lot of other levels. We can add to and take away from the aspects of God in the order that they accommodate what we like and what we dislike. Therefore, what we're actually worshiping is an idol, God-altered. Y'all hear that? Our view of God can be an idol. Your view of God can be an idol. 
When I said, not my God, my God would never do that, what I was guilty of in that point is idolatry. Because my view of God was not lining up with his breathed out word. This should be sobering. Because the only way to keep a right view of God is by his breathed out word. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Even the stuff that we disagree with. Even the stuff that we would have done different. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. What that's saying is that God breathed out this, and if you want to be competent and equipped to do the work of ministry that he calls you to, you do not change what this says. And so if I speak or someone else speaks the scriptures to you plainly, you don't have the liberty to say, nah, that's just your interpretation. You humble yourself before the Lord. This should be sobering because uh, to worship your view of God is no different than worshiping Baal. It's not God. You got to be careful. You have to check your view of God as you're sharing with people. Share, am I sharing a biblical view of who God is or am I sharing my God-altered view? My altered view of the, the, I don't want them to see the full picture. They might run away. You can't scare anyone away from God. You can be foolish in the way you use your words if you're divisive and you hold it boldly without the humility. But if you hold your convictions boldly with all humility, you can't scare people away from God. You can't scare, you can't scare them to hell like the praying during the prayer at the conference. It's not any different than worshiping Baal because it's not God. But here's the other part, the part you need to hear in a gentle tone. None of us can have a perfect view of God. We're a fallen people. So this is, there's a dailiness about this. This has to be happening in community where people are checking you and you're checking people and there's motives being exposed. And if the motives aren't in conjunction with a God-honoring aim of applying this word, then you need to repent. It can't happen by yourself. None of us can have a perfect view of God, but what I would offer is that many of us should work out our salvation with more fear. Many of us should work out our salvation with more trembling we should tremble before God if we come before him saying, God, search my heart and tell me if I'm truly worshiping you. God, search my heart and if I'm just worshiping my view of you, show me my foolishness. Show me my arrogance. I humble myself before you because I want you to be honored in my life. The difference between fear and trembling is arrogance and harshness. You could look at the truth of the Word of God and say, no way, uh-uh, that's not true. I, I don't think that's right. I think you're wrongly interpreting that. I think you're being hateful and cruel and mean. Work out your salvation with fear and, and trembling. There's so much more to this. I want you all to hear this. There's so much more to this than God elects, and if you don't agree, you're just dumb. That's not a right way to handle this. There's way more to it than God elects, and if you don't agree, you're just dumb. Remember the point that Ben made in his sermon from Hilary of uh, Podiace. That which you cannot understand is that which God can be. That which you cannot understand is that which God can be. But God gives us his breathed out word so that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. So what he reveals in here about himself is, should be known. 
Like what he reveals should not go unseen. What he reveals should not be swept under the rug. What he reveals should not be ignored. What God reveals is what should be known. It should be paid attention to. We should stir one another up by way of reminder of what he reveals to us about himself. All the while knowing that which you cannot understand is that which God can be. This is really personal to me in this community because in six years I've observed some things in this community that really break my heart. I am brokenhearted by our inability to have different beliefs within the same faith. I'm brokenhearted by an approach that's divisive. I'm brokenhearted that I drive past seven or eight church buildings on my way here, which is 2.1 miles from my house, knowing that no one's working together on much of anything. I'm brokenhearted by our inability to have different beliefs in the same faith. I'm brokenhearted by a fractured church community that's misrepresenting the truth about the oneness of God and the unity that we have as an undeserved gift in Christ. What I'm saying is that there is a way to have different beliefs and still rightly represent God. And you hold your convictions boldly, but humbly, not screaming at each other, not calling other people stupid, not talking bad about other churches who may have a different view specifically of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This specific scripture in Genesis 25 is very divisive. There are people sitting in this room right now who have family members in other churches in this community where even as they sit around the dinner table, this is divisive. But there's a way for us to have different beliefs in the same faith and still rightly represent God. Hold your convictions boldly, but with all humility. I believe that God does these things, that he can change the order of nature. I believe that he ordains the days of every life before they're lived. I believe that he loves and even hates as he sees fit. I believe that he saves some while leaving others to that which they deserve. And I believe that those who are saved did nothing to earn the right to be saved. Because of these beliefs, I've been called unevangelistic, I've been called lazy, and I've even been called hateful. But the flip side of that is because of these beliefs, I have been prone to the tendency of frustration, impatience, and doctrinal pride. See the balance there. I've been called bad names because I believe that God does this. I believe that when plainly read and when we look at this, I don't believe that we need to do a circus act to explain it away. I believe it. And I've been called these bad names because of it. But I've also been prone to some things. I've been prone to arrogance. I've been prone to look down my nose and say, you hold a belief that's different than mine, you are inferior. I'm prone to that. You have to check yourself. You have to be in a community where you are teachable. You have to be putting things out in the light so that people can hold you accountable on those things. We must constantly fight against imbalance that promotes division and fosters a fractured community. I don't... (laughs) I don't have some hippie notion that we're all going to just be buddies and get along and just, that's cool, man, whatever. I, I don't have an unrealistic picture that somehow, in the snap of a finger, everything in this fractured community is going to change. But I believe that there's a way for us to have different beliefs within the same faith that many in this community have never even considered. It's almost like you have a different belief, you're wrong, and I'm right. When it says in Scripture to welcome the weaker brother, not to argue over opinions, it it says to welcome him to show love. And one of the things that we read in that same Scripture where it says welcome the weaker brother, we're reminded that at any point in time, one of us could be the weaker brother. There could be a point that we're talking about in Scripture, something we're looking at on who God is, how he works, how he functions, and we may very well at any point in time be the weaker brother. 
A lot of times we read that scripture and, yeah, we'll be careful to deal lightly with all those weaklings. You may be the weakling. But I encourage you to be fully convinced in your own mind. That's, that, that's a call from God's breathed out word on your life. Know what you believe. Don't have what I call lazy man theology. There's a lazy man theology that says, I'll just ask when I get there. And I don't think that's helpful. I think that's just as divisive. And if, if someone won't sit down with you with the word, and when they do, you better be ready. If you're going to make the most of a teachable moment, the word has to be on your heart, on your mind. You've got to know what's in here. That's why you need to be fully convinced. So if someone says, okay, let's sit down, which is rare, that's your option. You don't have the option of quarreling over opinion. You don't have the option of having a sword fight with them, a theological sword fight where you just see who can raise their voice louder, make the best point, and, and show again and again how right they are and how wrong. You don't have that option. You have the option of keeping the word central, the cross central, seeking to honor God, not just be right. So if someone won't sit down with you in the, and go to the word, don't get into an argument and a quarrel over opinions. Don't do that. That's a trap. Don't fall into it. Don't be deceived. One of the things I'm thinking about it here in closing, next week we're going to talk about what it means to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Everyone in this room, as children of God, you are called to have a clear conscience as you hold this mystery of the faith. And we're going to talk about that next week. And we may end our Genesis study next week. That may be where we, where we uh, end things. And I'll, I'll tell you about the next week and, and June as well. But um, a clear conscience. We're to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But as we're looking at this tonight... You know, don't, don't have that lazy man theology that says, I'm going to, I'll just ask when I get there. Um, Romans 12 says, be transformed. I urge you by the mercies of God to be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that you may know that which is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect and pleasing in his sight. So what you're called to is transformed. This is a regular thing by the renewal of your mind. You, you will change as a person as your mind is renewed. Transformation is not going to just happen by saying, eh, I don't know, eh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, that's hard, I don't know, I don't know. Be fully convinced in your own mind, and part of being fully convinced in your own mind is being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hold your convictions boldly but humbly. Don't promote division that is so rampant in our community. Seek to show hospitality. Show love in every opportunity you can. Look for, wake up with your families and say, how can we show love to this community, this very very divided community and hold your convictions boldly with all humility. Are there any questions? Um, how do you rightly handle the situation where someone says, not my God? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't yell. Don't, don't tell them they're stupid. Um, I think what Ben just said was, was, you go to the Word. Will you sit down and go to the Word with me? Can we look at this Word as plainly? And uh, one of the things that I've done is, as, as people have have really tried rightly to, to, to deal with some of these hard truths, go to 2 Timothy 3.16. This is not just a man-made thing. This is not a history book. This is breathed out by God. So either you're going to look at what's breathed out by God and submit to it, or you're going to look at what's breathed out by God and rebel against it. But they need to know that if they're submitting or if they're rebelling, it's, it's, it's what's breathed out by God, not just your opinion. So that 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great place to go first Say, this is breathed out, and the aim is to be competent and equipped for every good work, to, to show honor in the belief that you have and the application that it has on your life. 
And so I always go to that first and then to some of the other harder scriptures. But if, if someone doesn't want to sit down with you in the Word, don't, don't get into a, an argument or a quarreling over opinions. Yeah, in the same way that you can't scare someone off, you also can't trick them into it either. You can't, you know, if I say the right thing with the right zinger, you know, at the right time, I'm going to make you believe this. You, know, you, can't, you can't scare them off, but you can't trick them into it either. What we talked about last week, the inefficiency of the work of ministry, you've got to embrace that. I mean, those are the kind of conversations you may have those for forever. I know people who have had family members they've prayed for for decades, and they're still praying the same way that Isaac and Rebecca were. Yeah, that's what Paul's addressing in Romans. In the church in Rome, he's addressing that. He's saying, he's not saying, y'all don't have any divisions among you. Don't do that. Y'all, or y'all don't, no, he is saying don't have divisions among you. He, what he's not saying, he's not saying y'all don't have any different beliefs in the same faith. He's saying there are different beliefs, but it is not a different faith. It is the same faith. And that's exactly what you just said. He's saying there's a way to hold that rightly. We'll hang around. If there's any more questions or, or thoughts, I'm going to pray quickly.